I'm very thankful. I say that a lot lately, but uh, it's true. Uh, but we're going to get right to it. We have a new phone number, 502-501-3477, if you want to call in today. Uh, I want to welcome to the show the new state rep-elect. Do it, do it. <laughs> you know what I'm doing. I'm going to get your name right. No, you're going to do it. Nika? Right. Yeah. El Ugato. Perfect. Very good. Because you helped me. Yeah. You did. Very good. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you a round of applause. There's only one person <laughs> on the show. We used to have give huge rounds of applause with a bunch of people in the studio. Thank it's you. Just, it just, the guys in the back are applauding, too. We're very happy. Thanks. Disrupt Boston, uh, Disrupt Boston here. Uh, uh, down the road, uh, beer company to have you, uh, state rep elect. Uh, you're going to be, what that means is you're going to be serving in January. You just won an election against Jeffrey Sanchez. Yeah. Which is, it's it's a huge, like, upset. People didn't expect things like this to be able to happen where long-term incumbents are challenged. And, and not just challenged, but actually they lose. Like, they lose the seat. And to lose the seat to someone like yourself and the issues that you ran on and the campaign that you ran on. It's exciting, right? I'm wicked excited. Can <laughs> <Yeah>. you tell? <laughs> yeah. I like it. Um. So, I mean, you, you had posted on your Facebook page about there was a controversy recently. Uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure whose show it was. Was it Jim and Marjorie or Jim Browdy's show? Something was said, and people keep talking about it. Oh, Basic Black. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's where it was. GBH? I think so. Oh, one of those channels. <laughs> Channel 5. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Tra- yeah. I don't keep track. <laughs> okay. But it's yeah. um, Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, yes. Yeah. And, uh, She's cool, by the She way. is cool. Okay. Yeah. And people in the media have talked a lot about that, but you listed all of these other... Just some examples, really. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get to all of them. But no, no, I, we can a, talk about whatever. A few that I'm just like, wow. Yeah, I was I just was like, making a broader point that I can talk about a lot of different things that I think are innovative and bringing forward ideas that people have. And if I say anything about race in the middle of that even dissertation then the race gets picked up when she said racist what does she mean about us all <laughs> it's okay i guess i'm i just wasn't i wasn't expecting that at first because i didn't realize it was newsworthy to point out that there was racism in american institutions I know. isn't it <laughs> like i look at this stuff as being silly like people get so caught up when race gets brought up because like in the cannabis space right now this becomes a big issue where people who should be on the right side of this are not, and I'm talking about mostly white guys uh, who have been busted. And the law says basically they're covered too, just like people of color are cover, covered, you know. And basically, what it says is disproportionately harmed. Right. People who have been disproportionately harmed by the law should get some kind of break in the industry. And that's not actually happening enough. Uh, we're right. seeing, unfortunately, even though the law intended it and there is some hope. Um, I want to. I guess I just want to get right to that question sure. uh, with in the cannabis space. Do you think uh, the law should be changed to allow uh, funding for uh, what we're talking about is dis- uh, disproportionately harmed micro grows people who are from the area as opposed to like billionaires from Colorado and California? Yeah, I think it's safer if we allow disproportionately harmed for people to be able to demonstrate that. We can give some examples based on ability status, based on race. Uh, But you know, I grew up in Ohio and we had, and I had to move a lot. I had to move two, three times sometimes in a year uh, because of evictions and other craziness going on. 
and so a lot of times I was running with other people who are very, very poor. And that included Appalachian migrants, right? And one of the things I think a lot of people around here don't realize is that poverty is a killer and there's a lot of different things that cross product with poverty, a lot of different stereotypes. And like being an Appalachian is one of them. So if we were in Ohio, I would want to include white Appalachians in that. And so what happens over here in Boston area and Massachusetts in general is I think poverty has been very segregated. And so people associate poverty with, with people of color. And so when you say like there's racism, there's anti-poverty, there's anti-LGBTQ, sometimes straight white people don't see themselves in it. One of the things I like to point out is that all of that stuff is connected. So if we go back to the founding of our country, uh, white men who were not landowners were not considered citizens either. They didn't have a say, they didn't have a vote. But they did, in those days, um, have a whole mythology to divide poor white people against immigrants, against uh, uh, natives, against uh, black people, you know? And to this day, that type of division keeps us arguing about the wrong things. We need to be talking about economic advancement of all people equally, right? And that's why I say it's good to mention, oh, there's structural racism and structural poverty. And then the next question shouldn't be, why are you saying that? The next question should be, so what do we do in the cannabis area? Right. So yes, we can have funds. Uh, because if we simply say we're going to um, make a preference for people who have been disproportionately held back by the very same system, uh, and we don't provide any funds for that, then it's not going to be possible for it to happen. And that's kind of what's happened right now. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. See, you're so good on these issues. I, I meant to get to your list, and I asked you a question off the list. I noticed that, but I was rolling with it because I, I wasn't trying to say people should never talk about it. I was just trying to say, like, in an hour and 30 minutes, we can talk about a lot of things, right? right? And I think we <laughs> talked about it differently. We weren't just caught up in That's what exactly was sensational right. on the news yeah, that day. Yeah, I didn't feel like you were trying to just, like, get another headline. Uh, let's talk about, uh, I, I want to jump off the list again, but I'm going to get back to some of these other ones because I, I saw some really issues I care about. Number one, single pair. Yeah. What? Where are you on that? What? what Tell so, us about it. So, so here's the thing. I'll put it in a little broader context so everybody might maybe want to come along. So we got to think about what is the role of public goods? This is something that we never really have nailed down. So I say education, healthcare, and housing are three of the public goods that should have, um, people should have the right to have them. So we decided, we were, you know, we were the first state to decide education is for everybody, right? And then the rest of the country followed through. We were the first state a couple hundred years later to decide that about healthcare. I mean, and, and now we need to decide that about housing, housing for all, right? These are intentional structural decisions that we make to change things away from promoting poverty to expanding opportunity. But now we privatize these things at every turn, which actually turns it back into a kind of a private market. And what I mean by that, so to not make it too boring, when it comes to healthcare, it's like every other thing, you know, those three things, what they have in common is that people need them to survive. Right. right. Unlike luxury cars, even toothpaste. I mean, we like to have it, but we don't need it to survive. So there's a lot of things where capitalist markets, it's fine because they compete. Yes. And, and what happens when they compete, and don't worry, if you are like a PhD in economics, I'm sorry, but if you never went to school, I want to say it in a way that everybody knows what I'm talking about. So if you have a, a bunch of different people competing for stuff, 
they're going to keep raising the price as high as people are, most people are That's willing right. to pay. That's right. So as long as the people at the top income levels are making more and more and more money, which has been happening, then the price is going to rise. The average prices are going to rise higher and higher and higher and higher, right? That people are willing to pay. What does that mean for people at the bottom? They get farther from the people at the top, and things like healthcare, housing, education become unaffordable. That's right. That's why they said, all the people fighting for it a couple hundred years back, education has to be a basic right. They didn't think that. They thought poor kids can't get educated. They, they're not smart. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's how they used to think about it. Same way they think about housing. So with health care, we can't make it available to everyone and then accept that one in five people can't afford it. It has to be also affordable for everyone. And what's affordable has to be equitable across. Single payer says, because universal is a totally different concept, single payer says, uh, there's going to be one cost center, and it's going to be a public cost. And then we can make chooses. We can allow some people to parachute shoot in with corporations if they can provide a particular service better, but they have to demonstrate that. We're not going to have thousands and thousands of corporations and all the different aspects of healthcare competing for the costs um, to rise higher and higher and higher. The uh, government is going to decide it's going to set those costs. We pay a lot of money, those big sunk costs in the beginning, to rein it all in. But then the increase in cost over time is going to be a lot slower because you don't have anybody competing for it, right. which is bad if you're trying to get the best sports car, right? Um, but it's good if you're talking about tax dollars where there's an incentive to keep the cost down. And Am I making sense? Yeah, sometimes I, I mean, get too geeky we're talking about on the state level, the state of Massachusetts. Well, doing that's this? the thing. I'm talking about the state because here's the problem with doing it nationally as is. So you know how when we went universal, we knew there were a lot of flaws, but a lot of times we get so caught up in patting ourselves on the back, which needs to happen when you do something good, like introduce universal health care. But we forget we have to look for those known and unintended consequences that are negative, and we have to fix the stuff. Like the costs are going to get out of control. We knew that from the beginning. I was um, when I worked at the uh, state senate about ten years ago. I was um, a senior policy advisor for Senator Chang Diaz. And uh, two of my big areas were housing and healthcare finance. And back then, the very first thing I learned is that these costs are so complicated, almost nobody understands them. Right. But instead of saying to the Obama administration, when we export this type of care, we need to be very careful to help you understand the problems of it. We just presented it as a model by itself, even though it hadn't been fully tested and worked out to be affordable. And so all of those problems got exported with it onto a much larger scale. What we need to do in Massachusetts is take advantage of our role as leaders and do that testing like they do in companies, like they do in nonprofits, like they do even in faith communities where they like try something out. That didn't work. Okay, what should right. we do next? The government is slower to have a testing model where you hold yourself accountable to what you said you were going to do. Definitely. Because there's too much like, now it's the next election. I got to talk about everything I did well. And so you lose that opportunity to learn from the things that aren't working and failing. We need to do that for our nation as Massachusetts because we're farther out ahead in Universal. We need to do that with regards to um, trying out single payer. And then we can help, and a few other states that are very different from ours need to try out single payer. And then we can compare notes and say, okay, this is our recommendation on how to uh, phase in for the entire nation this kind of a model so we can have equitable justice across the country. 
Does that make sense? I think so. Okay. I, I think I, we should look I, at it. I mean, why yeah, we not can break it give down. it a shot? Yeah. <laughs> like you said, like it's like a, we're talking about pilots all these time. time. Why don't we pilot that? Right, right. I don't like using pilot only because what pilot usually means is I'm going to try something out and then I'm going to forget about it and try right. the next thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but actually, give but it we got to test it. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. got to we got to test our models, knowing that we're going to have unintended. We have to look for them, not like in case we do. We have to look for them. There's there's millions of smart people. Um, uh, some of them formally educated, some of them educated in the streets and all other kinds of places that can look at a thing and say, okay, maybe if we try this, maybe if we try this. But we just have to have that intentionality about learning. I love that you're here today. I, I want to tell you a story too. Uh, we have uh, again. I want to make sure you. Everyone knows we have uh, state rep elect Nika Elugato, and she was just uh, recently elected in November over a long-term incumbent, uh, very powerful guy, Jeffrey Sanchez. And uh, back in the day, I was a cannabis reformer. I was uh, with MassCan Normal on their board for like 10 years. I was uh, the president of the organization. And one of the things that we got upset about was medical cannabis and Jeffrey Sanchez's uh, opposition to it for year oh, after year after year on the health committee too, leading the health you know that the uh the health committee up at the state house and uh knowing where he was living and we actually uh had someone run against him and uh we knew the person had no shot and i think he knew that himself but he tr he tried a good campaign jeffrey herman oh yeah uh, but it, you know and and to see years later now like you know jeffrey sanchez could kind of laugh at that herman campaign because it didn't really get any traction and you know it was kind of single issue but in the long run uh we kind of won i think with you i really feel like we won with you oh, and we kind of got the last laugh on i, I don't want to be mean to jeffrey sanchez because i know there's a lot of great things he's well, done a lot of good work because you know, we should never us, laugh no matter yeah what the reason for is us cannabis does. reformers it's kind of uh like we're happy to see uh New, new, new politicians elected that seem to get this issue, yeah. and they get that it's not like, how do we oppose it? It's how do we make sure it's done the right way? How do we make sure it's safe and equitable? And how do we make sure that our kids are understanding it as an opportunity for business? Uh, how do we make sure that, um, especially young people who are underage, but people in general understand the difference between recreational use and um, and a coping mechanism for something where you actually need some other kind of mental health care. Right. Uh, and these are things that we can learn and we can figure it out. And, and I'm excited that in, in my district, actually, um, a, a group called Core Empowerment uh, has applied. And I'm excited when I get in to find out. We, I've been talking to Tomas, who's one of the leaders there. Um, and they're going to put a museum, a social justice museum, attached to it. Um, some of my uh, constituents are concerned about the Social Justice Museum. They feel like it glorifies um, the use of cannabis to young people in a way that could be dangerous if they don't understand it, um, which I get from the standpoint of like responsible drinking, responsible cannabis use. You know, all of that is very critically important, and we have to watch that very carefully. But to um, bring it out into the open and to explain the history of uh, mass incarceration and That's how right. it ties. I mean, my dad. Um, my dad, I'm, I, I try with my dad to only say things he said publicly. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but my dad was a dealer. He could be a very he was a what? Prom he was a dealer. He really, could be a marijuana, very prominent, cannabis deal? Uh, mostly large volume, right? Wow. 
And so you've um, been around. You know you know probably a little more than just from him. Yeah, it was horrible. I hated it. Right. Because it's very dangerous. Right. Um, and that's what I hate about it. Like, you know, because I, I use, I'm a medical cannabis user. Like, yeah. you know, we find a lot of athletes and a lot of military. Uh, yeah. You know, it's the same people who are, like, uh, likely to use opiates for pain. Right. It's right. So, uh, but... The problem I have with it is that too. It's like the illegal drug trade. It just because right. it creates violence. It, it's it scary. Really it's violence. it's it scary. You don't know people are going to get poverty. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see thousands of dollars going through in plastic baggies. You know, um, and then meanwhile, our water's getting cut off. Mm. You know, when I was 11, my dad quit. He quit because I asked him to. It's the only thing I'm aware of that my dad ever asked my advice um, and followed it. Uh, but then, you know, it was hard because after that, he uh, was in a severe depression and struggled with crack addiction until I was about 30. And oh, so we wow. had to deal with that. But honestly, um, I remember my dad driving me down to Miami. And uh, when we were down in Miami, I stayed with, uh, we called him Uncle Les. He was in that field, my dad's boss. Um, my dad's boss's boss or something like that. He was a millionaire businessman. And he had all this stuff going on down in Miami. And it was very dangerous, you know. And so I hung out with his kids that were a couple years older than me. I was 10. And it was a dangerous situation. It was terrifying. I had to defend myself on a number of occasions just to get through the night. Mm. You know, I was, thank God, able to successfully do that because they were rich kids. Right. And I was trained to fight. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked out. But it was terrifying because they were like 14, your whole life, it sounds 16. Like. Well, you know. I grew up, everybody is. That's not news either. Do you know what I mean? I had to learn that that's not like how you want to ideally have children have to right. live. Um, but my dad taught me a right job and a left hook when I was seven years old. I was a real sweet kid. I hated fighting. I would stand up to bullies. But he was like, Nika, you're not going to be faster than the boys for much longer. Because, you know, when you're seven, the girl can outrun the boys. Because wow, yeah. they usually grow up, they're taller. You that's know. right. Until you get on 11, 12, then suddenly they pass you up and they get stronger and all this. It's very unfair feeling <laughs> if you're an athlete girl. <laughs> um, but anyhow, my dad equipped me for that. And he said, um, in his words, he said, you're not always going to be uh, uh, stronger or faster, but you're always going to be smarter, especially than anybody who attacks you. And he said, I remember when I was four years old, he said, Nika, do you think I win all my fights? Because he used to fight a lot when he was younger. Now he's a pastor, which is funny. Um, do you he think sounds like a really smart guy already. I'm telling my dad, my dad is brilliant. You know, he overdosed three times. Uh, and so, you know, that affects things. But um, I love my dad. He and my mom and my extended family. I was very lucky. They all taught me I could do anything from a very young age. And so the fires going on, I saw things you shouldn't see. Not like kids these days have to take to take in. But I, I saw a lot of things that one shouldn't see as a child. I've raised my daughter and I'm always, oh, cocaine parties are not good for uh, six-year-olds to be attending. <laughs> right. Uh, but it also is <laughs> seared in my head what it looks like for somebody to go from being sober to being high right. in the eyes of a child. And I have amazing stories of watching that and how it just affected my mind in positive ways, even though it was tr like some trauma. But right, sure. through the healing of my parents looking out for me and saying, are you okay? You know, we got you. Don't worry about this. Um, knowing that that love that is interesting you, you said that good. like because it seems like sometimes if you survive some of these bad things sometimes it can be positive in certain ways well healing is always a positive thing and even when it's painful so there's good pain and bad pain and the pain that, that doesn't heal is the thing that holds us back right yeah oh, i love you said that you're you're uh sharing too today and it's oh, giving us a lot you. this is amazing so if, if you ask interesting questions, you'll get interesting answers. I'm wondering, like, I have a whole list. I'm like, which one would be the most interesting right now? 
Um, I want to ask one of your questions uh, okay. about how about uh, well, let's give out the phone number too. If anyone wants to call in, this is a good time. 502-501-3477 or 502-501-disrupt is our phone number. It's on the screen. You can call right now. Uh, if you have a question, we have state rep elect uh, Nika L. Ugardo. She helped me out. Uh, the, uh, you helped me out with the... Uh, the pronunciation. Pronunciation. Thank yeah. you. You helped me out on that word, too. <laughs> you can be my co-host. You're very good at this. If you yeah. didn't have another, uh, so many other important things to, to do, <laughs> if we could afford you here. Uh, but maybe someday. Well, currently I'm working for free. <laughs> <laughs> Today you are. No, every day. Oh, every you know, day. You know, I don't, oh, until I don't you, get sworn until in. You until you get sworn 2nd. in. Yeah. January 2nd. Then yeah, you'll so be a you state run, you're running 18, 18, 20 hours a day, you know. Uh, and then when you get elected, you get 10 to 12 hours a day at least. Some days there's still 14, 16 hours, and it's all pro bono. That's <laughs> uh, crazy. It, we, uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made yeah. same mention of that, and I agree with that, like bringing that up, because it's another issue why, like I talk about why I won't run. It's, you know, all, all that you have to give up. And, and you've been yeah. running for how long? You ran for I over ran for a year? 73 weeks. Yeah. And until the no primary paycheck, was basically. 64. Yeah. yeah. So I kept my job for a while. And then my beautiful husband, Marcos, shout out to Marcos for a lot of things. But um, he got a surprise double promotion at the beginning of this year. And that enabled me at the end of March to go full time on the campaign, um, which we were like praying for, but not seeing how it was going to work out financially. And then he got this this promotion, and we were like, okay, we can do it. Because I had, um, we had uh, been living with my sister and her four kids, who we had taken in for, like, some healing work that she needed to do and that they needed to do. And they did very, very well for, like, a year and a half. We were in the middle of that when we started the campaign because uh, they had lost their dad to gun violence and had a lot of healing. And, and she was struggling through some things, and she did a good job navigating once she came in with us. But anyway, we went into a lot of debt. Like, we spent our whole savings doing that. And so to start a campaign from that standpoint, you know, you don't want it to get so deep you can't get out of it. Right. And so um, I needed to keep that job. And I just kudos to the men and women who have to work the whole time, you know, and run a campaign. And then some of those won. Some people won under those conditions. Some single people won under those conditions, which, you know, there's nobody helping them helping them with the bills. And so I just think that's amazing. But you shouldn't have to be some kind of a super person especially the House of Representatives is supposed to, by design, be so your everyday neighbors can win. That's right. That's what's supposed to be different about it, that the only qualification yeah, so is that like you get Senate. your neighborhood yeah. and you're passionate about the issues of the Commonwealth. That's right. Um, and uh, I mean, you must... I'm really excited, too, uh, that you won, um, that so many other people won, like Ayanna yeah, Presley, yeah, yeah, Rachel Rollins. It seems like Rachel. there's a new wave of women, especially women of color, do you okay. see this happening more and more? Do so there's a lot of women, women of color. There's a lot of people who previously thought they couldn't or didn't want to, in most cases, get involved in politics. Um, but I think what we all have in common, more than race and gender, is uh, now the new wave of politics is, is attracting people who are like, I work very hard sure. and I execute. I am accountable for my actions and I do it with my community. So everybody running, whether John Santiago, who's a doctor, uh, Rachel Rollins, who's been a lawyer on all sides of the equation, um, uh, Ayanna Presley, who's been in public service in a very community-based way, um, you know, all these people are 
uh, bring in a, an execution model, and that's what voters want and people who are becoming voters for the first time. I was so touched today. I was interviewing somebody in a cafe to be my aide. And this woman, who's probably like in her late 60s, early 70s, said to me, Nika, I want to tell you, I have a friend, a Latina friend, who uh, is the owner of a business nearby. And she told me that she voted for the first time for you. And the reason people are coming out across the country in local races is because they're voting for people that believe in them. That's what we have in That's common. Right. That's why the disproportionate is now in the other direction, the positive direction. Yes, we're disproportionately women and disproportionately women of color and people of color and more LGBTQ than before because we are people who, uh, by, by virtue of how we've al already lived our lives, um, we care about the people more than our personal advancement. We're not trying to balance a career path in politics with caring for people. And I'm not dissing anybody else because there are a lot of people that started out that very same way. But another major difference that we're allowed to do today that previous politicians weren't given permission to do is we're allowed to say we're not gonna run the same way, we're not gonna talk the same way, we're not gonna dress the same way, we're not gonna behave the same way, we're not even gonna think the same way when we run or when we govern. And people will vote for us when we say that. Before Trump, honestly, when, when I would say stuff like that, people would say, you could never be in politics. That's right. After Trump, everyone's like, we need you <laughs> in politics. You know, because now everyday people are feeling the pain of our historic marginalization right. of people that don't have access to financial capital. And before, when middle class people were like, oh, it's okay, you know, rich people can be rich, poor people can be poor, until the, the impacts of poverty started creeping up. The impacts of uh, not enough healthcare, the impacts of not enough jobs, the impacts of uh, education being disproportionate. And not even if not for them, they're seeing like their friends, their loved ones, people are going down, opioid crisis. When people start to feel that pain in the middle, like in the median, that's when people start to be open to something new. And I think a lot of the existing politicians are um, excited because they're like, oh, we don't have to do it this way. We don't have to climb up some ridiculous ladder of corporate influence and positional power to then like get some stake thrown us thrown at us instead of having breadcrumbs thrown That's at us right. we could actually demand a seat at the table That's so right. nobody's throwing us our food it's like, like a it's dog like there's been a shift you can see the shift like i've seen it over yeah. the life of the show even on the guests that we get and uh just now that we see guests that come in that win <laughs> elections right. i mean routinely routinely yeah. Yeah. and they're the right ones you can see it um but I, I gotta say about Rachel. One yes, thing go about ahead. Rachel. Who came on the show? We love her. Yeah, I love Rachel too. We and endorse the her. reason I want to pull her out specially, because we all have things in common that we get put together and I think we enjoy each other. But I think Rachel needs a special spotlight because to do what she has done, first of all, as DA, um, is really unbelievable right. for a black woman. Yeah. But really for anyone. And especially unbelievable if you have had extra people that are sketched out because of how you look, because of your size, your gender, all these different things. And the fact that she doesn't just step in there, uh, but she has a whole county, Suffolk County. She's got like multiple governments yes. that she has to convince and deal with. Incredible diversity. She has to convince everybody, not just people of color. She has to convince uh, conservatives and moderates 
and she came out there and obliterated her competition both times. Yeah, she did. Unabashedly she did. and without shame. Yeah. And and it's just gorgeous the whole time. It was. You know, the whole time in every I way. I was with her. Like, and she funny never as, as, <laughs> as can be. I mean, I just love that woman. She's very, she's a unique person, you. and I want to separate it out from just the woman of color thing, which is fine and That's good. Right. But, but just Even as a human that. being, yeah. she is a very special person. And I just want to shout you out, Rachel. I haven't seen you a couple weeks, exactly. and it's been too long. You know, when she won that primary, we were, we had an election watch party. We were all like in a studio with the guy who was ended up being her opponent in the general. Oh, what? And. We were expecting, you know, Henning to win and that yeah. we were going to end up supporting this guy. Uh-huh. And then it turned out the opposite. Like, really, when Rachel won, it was like... There it, goes that pendulum. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was, bro. It was, oh, I mean, just... And he didn't know it at that point, but I didn't even know it at that point. But I did, uh, you know, like, it was just... She's something to behold. That's why I like that we won, call her Thanos. When she won that, <laughs> when she pulled that out over Henning, that yeah. was the most amazing, like, feeling for me anyways. I know for a lot of people, like yourself i mean to see that to see that win i I haven't said this publicly i probably should never say it uh because i my team is amazing and all the hundreds of people i'm so proud of them uh but i was happier for rachel's win than for my own because i expected mine yeah (laughs) i expected to win whereas with rachel i was like oh that's that's tough i know she can do it but let's see what happens and she cleared that field like it was nobody's business. Her right. daughter runs track. If you watch her daughter, yeah, she's no, a champion yeah, track yeah, star. Yeah, yeah. It's we the met same. her that day. And she has a similar spirit as well. We talked about like sports. She does not and mince you're an athlete words. too, right? I was an athlete. Yeah, I'm an now athlete I'm mostly too. an arthritic middle-aged woman. <laughs> something we all have in common, <laughs> athletics. Yeah. I love sports. Well, you know, especially I'm, I sometimes watch a little football on TV, but mostly not. I mostly rag on football fans. But, and even sports radio, I listen to a little bit of I mostly rag on that stuff, but I, I love playing sports, like, you know, yeah. being a part of a team. It teaches you a lot about how to work with people and how to not take yourself too seriously and how to love people after you obliterate them or get obliterated by them. You know, how to move on and get a beer or juice or whatever you do. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about some of these other things you post on your Facebook page. Okay, uh, cool. Humility. Yeah. I think I sometimes need it. Sometimes, man. That is not my strong point. It's a constant effort. So I'm a devout person. I'm a devout Christian, and I have... Uh, a daily, a couple times daily spiritual practice, um, which is a little bit skinnier um, with my new job <laughs> than it used to be in terms of number of uh, hours a day. But still very, very important for me to put my ego in check at the beginning and end of each day. And that's not just important for your own personal happiness. What happens if you lead out of your ego, then you can't hear what needs to be done. You can only hear what your own fears are. You can only hear what your hungers are. And everybody has those. And if you lead like that when you're in a position of power, your fears and hunger are going to dominate the community conversation instead of being a conduit for other people's amazing genius and ideas, whether it comes from formal education, education on the streets, or other things they've learned and experienced. Wisdom of the community requires the humility of our leaders. The more power you have, the less of yourself has to matter. And that doesn't come naturally to me or to most people that are willing to uh, be in leadership positions. And so um, that's very, very critical. Uh, phone number again, 502-501-3477. If, we, if anyone wants to call in, good time to do so. Do so. Uh, we're with State Rep-elect 
Nika El Ugato. Yeah, you keep saying it right. Perfect. I keep getting it right. Nailing, nailing the English pronunciation. Uh, we have more time, too. Uh, talk about, uh, this is a big one, a couple big ones at the mm-hmm. bottom. Conquer and transportation problems. How do we do that? Right, Real quick, because right. I want to make sure we get in, in all, uh, a bunch more. So let's. That says transphobic, but if you want to oh, talk oh, about oh my transportation, God. we can No, do actually, that. you know what? <laughs> That's another big one, too. I mean, uh, let's talk about both Only of them. Only because I We're don't talk have about a plan to conquer transportation, transportation. <laughs> and transphobia. <laughs> Because uh, let's talk about con- conquering transphobia, since okay. that was actually what you wrote. Thank you. <laughs> sure. You're correcting my writing, too. No, no. The only reason like I did scribbling. in that case is because I have ideas about transit, but I cannot conquer it at this time. That's so true. That's, you know what? And you're, that is the, <laughs> I, I know. Who conquer can conquer the transportation right. problem? No, no, no. Yeah, I like I'm you. not there. You're checking all my mistakes today. I no, love that, this. this. That would be awesome. a mistake on my part if I believe that. But uh, conquering trans- transphobia is absolutely possible right uh, now. I hope so. I mean. Yeah. How though? Because I, I I saw the campaign. I mean, I feel like we're pretty close when you look at the the numbers who voted, you yeah, know, yeah. for the law. But right. I also saw some of the other people that just seem like they'll never change. The small, right. I think it's like nineteen twenty percent of voters and probably the population. Well, what you want to check out is how that number is shifting by age, so that you can see like if as people get younger. The percentage of people resisting, embracing all of our folks is, is also getting smaller. Uh, so like for a 20-year-old, um, that percentage might be not 25%. It might be like two, 10%. And for like a 15-year-old, it might be 2%. And so this is the work we have to do. But the way we do it, so like for me, being like I said, devout, and I've worked um, in different parts of the world with all different kinds of religious groups and especially all different kinds of Christian groups, including like uh, cons- like socially conservative um, evangelicals, and like every other person, it starts with mutual respect and trust, and so you can hear what are the concerns. Now I have to admit, with the issue of transphobia, I can't always be the person to speak because I get very angry. Um, so what happened to me in my story is. Uh, you know, I have been fighting for racial justice and considered myself um, an advocate for LGBTQ issues for years. And I wasn't fully a champion because I hadn't acknowledged my own privilege. Uh, I was aware of privilege and how it affects other people who have privileges that I don't have. But I wasn't aware of my privilege as a cisgender straight female until we were discussing the bill for the first time, the transgender protection bill, we were trying to get it passed into law. And I was at my church at the time, the church that I went to at the time, and I uh, heard an announcement, oh, we're gonna have a rally around the transgender bill. And I was so excited, I was like, well, look at us, we're gonna go out there and we're gonna support our trans community, because we had trans people in the church. So I was like, oh, good. And then it was a rally against, and I realized, that there was a big faction of people in my own faith congregation that were willing to oppress and persecute trans people and felt like they were doing something that was right, even though we had friends and family in there that were trans, they didn't see that connection. And I realized like, how could I miss that? Because I'm so privileged as a cisgender person that I never even had to notice the levels of discrimination that are subtle even though people are welcome into the community like in a physical way and like with hugs and all of that. 
Um, and so I went back to my job at that time. I was running a research and consulting group that worked with a lot of community organizations, including a lot of faith organizations. And so I brought my team together and the head of um, certain kind of research, gender justice research, I said, you know, Stacy, um, I'm very furious about this, but we need to take action right now. We need to do some kind of uh, education of um, pastors and, and uh, church leaders. So we called on Northeastern, they uh, gave us a class and a couple of professors worked with us to develop a curriculum, like a, excuse me. Oh, bless you. I have allergies. Oh, man. I have allergies the, and I'm in a uh, warehouse. Yeah, so we're in a warehouse gonna... for beer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> some hops. Uh, so anyhow, so we put together that training and it was a beautiful thing, but we were like a few days into that training and a pastor came to me and she's very prominent, uh, a very wise person. A lot of people look up to her. She has radio shows and different things. And she came and she said, you know, Nika, have you heard what's going on with the transgender bill? And I was like, yeah, I know. I'm so upset about it. And then she was actually also against it. And I said, Hermanita, even though she's a lot older than me, I wouldn't normally like challenge her as fiercely as I did. But I was like, Hermanita, you can't think like that. You can't think like that because, um, you know, you are perpetuating an impression of a people group that is already dying and being killed at disproportionate rates by people that think like that. And so you can't come and tell me that you're concerned about people in the church because if you're saying that Jesus is inspiring us to love others, what's, what's going to look like love is recognizing the people that are the most vulnerable and we stand in the way of them being oppressed and marginalized like Jesus does for us. That's what the cross is all about. It's about somebody that doesn't deserve to get whipped, standing in the way for people that do so that they don't have to. How are you telling me that we're going to shut that down? And um, I was so fiercely angry. And then she got very teary because I was listing out some statistics about suicide of trans people of color. And she came, she came around and was like, Nika, you need to teach us about this because I hadn't thought about it in that way. And so these kind of conversations where we respectfully help people relate it to their own values are how we can conquer transformation. Awesome. Uh, we're speaking to uh, state rep-elect Nika Elugardo, uh, and we have a telephone call, I think, on the line. Who's on the line right now? Hi, this is Mike from Lexington. Hi, Mike from Lexington. Hi, Nika. Uh, I'm a big supporter of yours, and uh, I just had a, a question um, related to a, a larger issue that's, that's really been troubling me regarding uh, Massachusetts politics. Sure. Um, you know, obviously, uh, even though Massachusetts is quite a progressive state overall, we do have um, establishment entities like uh, uh, MIT and Harvard and the tech school. industry <laughs> and, and the defense industry. And, uh, you know, these people are not necessarily going to be um, very much in favor of certain aspects of the progressive uh, platform uh, that you support and I support. So I'm, I'm just wondering what's your um, plan, you know, especially when it comes to raising taxes and so forth and regulations. So I'm just wondering what's your um, plan for, for dealing with, with that or your approach. And sure. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take my... I'll take your response uh, off the air. Thank okay, you, Mike. Thanks, Thank you. Mike. Well, first, thanks for, your, thanks for your support. Thanks for your call. Let's take up the revenue piece um, because the thing about revenue is people say people don't want to pay higher taxes. I think the issue is that not that people don't want to pay higher taxes. People are tired of their tax money getting wasted. They're tired of not being able to trust that their tax money is going to be used for things 
that are, are, are actually changing the outcomes in our community for education, for transportation, for example, as we uh, mentioned before. And so people are like, lower my taxes. That's a sign that people don't believe in what we're doing with the budget. And part of that is because of the lack of transparency of the budget. And so there's a few things over time. You know, I'm going to, these are, these are things, the reason I didn't talk about these on the campaign is because um, they're a little bit innovative. And so I want to establish for people, like I'm somebody that gets stuff done before I start throwing out the very innovative things. But I would like to see us do a couple of, maybe through ballot initiatives. So for one thing, we need to commit as a legislature to have a, a kind of an accountability that if we raise the tax, we are going to at least in the first two years um, allocate that money and we're gonna, we're gonna state the aims in the bill, like in the budget bill, um, or in the legislation or whatever we do. Um, and we're gonna say, we're gonna use that money, for example, for transportation. And, uh, and, and that's gonna have these impacts. And we're gonna put this much money from the tax increase into education, and that's gonna have these impacts. And then we have course corrections built into the bill. And as you go throughout that time, you're gonna be able to um, check whether or not we are actually spending the money in the way that we said, and it is having the impact that it said it would. And if it's not, then that tax gets automatically repealed if it doesn't meet a threshold. And so like every other corporation, whether it's a nonprofit corporation or a for-profit corporation, we should say this is what we're going to be spending our money on so that people know and they can track and they can feel like, okay, our money's not going to go into a big sinkhole of, in, of, of inefficiencies. Who knows what? Right. Um, and with everybody trying their best, but it's not organized enough to actually make sense. And that's a very important incentive. Now, the second thing I think we can do is we can do a... So I, I was a tax extern. That was my first um, job at the State House when I was back in law school. And I was studying our constitutional amendment process in our state constitution, particularly around the flat tax and how many times we had tried to do a ballot initiative to get a progressive tax. So what if we message that a little bit differently and we say, look, everybody who pays taxes is making a sacrifice, but the burden is especially high, especially these days, on people that make median income or below. So let's just keep a flat tax for people that make a, a median or below, right? But if you make above median, then we're going to allow for a progressive taxation. And, uh, but no more than, let, we could pick a number like 2.5% above the lowest tax rate, right? And so we could put a little bit of a cap on that. And uh, people will say, well, what about the constitutional decision um, with, the, with the Massachusetts exactly what SJC? Like, what, what about so it? the problem there is that in the amendment yourself, you're already trying to allocate how you're going to spend the money. Right, and so that's not constitutional. And that was the part that was the problem. That yeah, that's a big part of the problem. Like, like because we said we want in the fair share, the fair share amendment, we want to tax one percent uh, to this population, um, and we're going to spend it on education so and transportation. So if it had gone to the general fund, it might have been okay. Uh, meaning, if we had just through legislation said right. uh, we're going to allocate it here this year, you right. know, for this year's budget. Um, yeah, because there's been many times that we have tried to just get a progressive tax on the ballot and have put it on the ballot. It just hasn't passed. And I think it would pass now if we message it not just as by itself, oh, we just need more money because uh, we don't know how to spend our money is how it comes yeah, across. It's we have to, to message roads. it as, it's going like, to we're going to hold you accountable. Yeah. But the way we're going to decide how to hold it accountable is the first couple years, we're going to like lay out so we can build your faith that we're using it well. And if we're not, it automatically repeals because we want you to be with us, conservative, moderate, Republican,
Democrat, progressive, we want you to feel the impacts of this work. And when that work isn't needed because we meet a certain threshold, then we will do that repeal and we will have a transparent reporting so that you can see that our budgeting is outcomes-based. Very few even towns and cities across America use outcomes-based budgeting where you have to show what the impacts of, uh, are of the money. Um, the legislature often is the final frontier for leadership innovation and, and that kind of a thing because there's no like boss. You know, the right. board of directors is the voters and they're different for every single district. And so we have to get creative in terms of how we're going to hold ourselves accountable and the voters have to help. They have to say, yes, we're going to give you a chance to fail, to fix it, to adapt. You know, like they say in agile and software, you know, they say, what is it? Try fast, fail fast, learn fast, adapt fast. And that works. I've used it in nonprofits. Um, it works very well for change. And so we need that kind of creative thinking in the legislature. And then we could spread the love around so different parts, different districts might have different needs. And so they could all over time receive the benefits of the taxation instead of like, it's a black box. We don't know. We put some more in, money in there and our roads are still falling apart. Awesome. We, we covered a lot of ground. We're almost out of time here. Uh, Sorry, Mike, I could talk longer about that. Maybe you can uh, shoot the me an list. email at info at policy, policy at electnica.com. We can continue the conversation. Is that how people can talk to you too directly? Well, that goes to my policy team. And if you say Nika said I could talk to her directly, then they'll send it to me. Perfect. And, <laughs> like uh, if they can't answer the question. And you're going to be in office in January? January 2nd. I yes. get sworn in. It's going to be a very exciting day. It is. Uh, you know what? Another issue I want to ask you before we leave. A couple sure. more. Uh, th this will be the speed round. It'll be okay. like yes, no. You yeah, know, do it. Love speed round. Because this is uh, came up. Uh, Shalene Title. Do you know Shalene? Do you know of her? Yeah. Is she, you mean the um, commissioner? Control? Yes. Yeah, she's Who we cool. Love. She's, she's a friend cool. of ours. She's cool. She's uh, coming hopefully back on the show in January. Tell her I said hi, and I have been like collecting some thoughts and a couple of numbers for her, and I just got to get around to sending them over. Awesome. Uh, good to hear because we love her, and uh, one of the things she brought up recently. Um, was about legalizing uh, not just cannabis, but looking at ending the drug war, harm reduction for other drugs. Um, it's also come up in Colorado and uh, I think Washington State out west. Uh, they're talking about now legalizing hallucinogens and other drugs. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this is about you know really actually reducing addiction. It turns out and to, you and, know, and violence and violence and, and yeah. creating policies that are like create less harm. Right. Um, like Narcan a few years ago, that's is what Shalene talked a lot about, is that Narcan was very controversial a few years ago, but now it's not. People realize that it saves lives. And yeah. these are the same types of things that we're talking about, that Shalene's been talking about. I, would you support things like this at the State House to go beyond cannabis? Yeah, we have to do it very smartly. We've been watching some other countries that have tried it. And even in Portugal, um, I was talking to a Portuguese counterpart. There are some cities where it has worked to legalize different types of drugs and um, like uh, I don't I can't say the words yeah, but you know all the different words. Um, now you get to correct <laughs> you help me. me in yeah. other words. Thank this you. Is awesome. Hallucinogens. Yes. And there's um, some some of the cities uh, it didn't work as well and some it did. So we have to look for like what makes What's it work. Uh, people like me who grew up watching the negative impacts of addiction and drugs. Um, like some of us have a knee-jerk reaction. Like if sure. you grew up with alcoholics, no, you're like, no, don't, don't just give that to everybody. Yeah. But the reality is we have to address the real problem just like they learned back in um, prohibition. Like the real problem is mental health, behavioral health, addiction. Yes. You know, and the addictions are coming out of behavioral health. 
Definitely. And sometimes that's definitely. tied to poverty, and sometimes it's tied to other traumas. This is, this is and so we true. have to put our money there, right. not into incarceration and criminalization. Right. I love it because, uh, you know, notice that too, the speed we're, answer, we're, we're from a beer, we're in a brewery, we're in a beer company. I have nothing against alcohol, but, you know, I'm not sitting here drinking uh, alcohol, you know, always live. It's like, you know, I might have one drink, but. I, I've even talked about it this week on you my Facebook. You said that you pointed to your fruit I, box. Yeah, I, I drink my fruit. That's my alcohol, like the fruit box. Because, you know, mostly I've had issues with alcohol. I talk about it. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm an alcoholic, but I could have been. I got that. I think I have that gene in me. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of issues with my drinking. I learned uh, I like the taste. Every once in a while, I'll have one drink. Sometimes I don't finish it. Yeah. Uh, my limit, absolute limit, is two drinks. And, uh, so you put those disciplines I on learned yourself. After yeah. years of struggling with it, you know, and... And it I, changes as you get older. I had issues, you know. Mm. I had everything that bad in my life was related to alcohol. Wow. So, you know, you have to kind of start looking at those behaviors. And it took me a long time to figure healing. out what was right for me. Right. You know, and sometimes abstinence 100% is what people need. Right. And sometimes you can get to a point where I'm at where I just like the taste of a margarita. <laughs> I, I love that. I like the taste of a beer. But not every day. Right. And it's very. I don't think I've had a, uh, an alcoholic drink in probably three or four months. That's why I'm actually maybe have one tonight. We'll see. But pretty soon, we'll see, you'll see me having a drink here. But I'm very conservative on these things too. I think that most people should be very careful with alcohol. With very careful about all these things that we talk right. about. Right. But it's exactly what you're saying. Let's reduce the harm, the violence, yeah. and the. I lived in the Netherlands and in Amsterdam where it's a lot of tourism and people, it's a little bit different, but I lived in Leiden and in the rest of the Netherlands where it's mostly Dutch people, uh, you know, uh, marijuana is legalized and you don't have the crazy things happening, you don't have youth overusing it, you don't have it being like a gateway drug to other things, you don't have people coping because healthcare is covered. So people cope with their healthcare problems in a healthcare facility. Oh, imagine um, that. Imagine or, if we could all or, do that or right in now. community facilities that are designed, you know, to, to generate that. And like American students, when I was in law school at the time, you know, they come and sometimes they go crazy because they don't have that uh, system in place where we have learned how to cope with our anxieties in healthy ways. And so we can't just keep kicking that can down the road because we see what happens is it's spiraling and it's literally killing us, not just our kids anymore. Um, That's why I like your single payer idea again. Yeah. That you brought that up because yeah. it's, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, health care, even people with insurance a lot of times can't get mental health. They can't get treatment. Yeah, behavioral health, we've got to get ahead of the game instead of behind the game. Especially for, um, well, for everybody, especially for young people, especially for post traumatic people, because you are stuck until you heal. And healing is powerful. You could be a stronger, um, more fulfilled person having gone through trauma and healed from it than having never had the trauma. But without the healing, people cannot progress. Like any disease, uh, if you don't get healed, it will kill you. It will kill your spirit in the case of behavioral health or your mind. And so we have to treat that in the same way as we treat every other kind of health issue. So critical. I want to thank you so much again for being here. Thank you for this having me. This is a long me. hour. Are you used to like... Is this different than going on like some of the other shows that you do? Like I know you do a lot of probably bigger shows and TV and. You know I don't watch TV, so I never have an awareness of how big the shows I am are. Right. Like I have no awareness of that, and so, um, you know, it's all the same for me. Except yeah. like some people ask interesting questions and some people don't. How do we do? How do you rate us? I you had know? a lot of fun. So Good. yeah. Will you come back. Of course, anytime. Awesome. awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. Thank Congratulations, you for too. I like. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, as as uh, our friend uh, Calvin uh, Calvin always says, black, he calls it black girl magic. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I have mixed feelings about that term. Wait, I don't, is that not good? Because now I feel funny about it. Wait. No, no. I, What's the mixed feeling? To be honest, this is the I'm, honest show. You can challenge anything. Well, I haven't really processed it because I never, ever think about the phrase until somebody says it. Yeah. Um, so it's not like I have developed thoughts, but it's just like, if we're talking about black girl magic because like everybody has magic and black girls have a certain brand of that, um, yes, because we tell the truth and we can be like beautiful, kind, and firm and scary all at the same time. And so that's just like a, a, a nature of how for most, especially lower income black women, had to be to survive. We're good at that. Like Rachel Rollins again throwing her up. She's like primo number one. I love except that. the sweet part is a little less, and the and the dominating part is a little more. Uh, she's like uh, very fierce, which I love. But for a black girl magic, if what you mean is you can be fierce, yes, and soft yes. at the same time, yeah. yes. But everybody has a brand of magic, and that's the thing. When we talk about different groups, we got to realize we're talking about like one kind of something like yeah. all the flavors right. in the um in the ice cream buckets you know and you can make new ones and you don't have to be like the one that's expected based on how you look up, like or where you grew up and so if we mean it in that way i'm all for it because it's not putting anybody in a box whatever you're saying <laughs> it's I'm like with. saying everybody can just open up and they can make their own magic yeah so i'm about that you see why she won she's amazing uh again state rep elect Congratulations to January 2nd. You're going to be Sworn up in Be Beacon and, Hill. And I'll get paid. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, I'm going to say it right. Again, Nika Elugato. Yeah, so you can still reach me or my team at Info at Elect Nika, or if you have a policy matter, policy at Elect Nika. And, um, and I'll be announcing when I, my swearing in party is going to be. Thankfully, Senator Ed Markey, who I love, he's like, he is a, a tall, 70-something-year-old white man who is the most feminist, um, equality uh, person who is anti-racist. And I just love that man. And so I'm excited that he has offered to uh, host a fundraiser for my swearing-in party. So when we get that date, we'll shoot it oh, out to you guys. that's great. Congressman Ed Markey. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a, our, our senator. Yeah. Awesome. Terrific. And I also see some other events. You get something coming up with uh, JP Progressives. That up? Yeah, I won't be able to be at that because I will be at my orientation in Amherst. Ah. So I feel very sad. JP Progressives is having all of us come out. So somebody will be there for my team, but I won't. But, oh, yeah, Ayanna Presley is throwing a um, fundraiser for me on December 11th, on Tuesday, at 23 St. John Street. I'm saying it real fast because it's already packed. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but That's if awesome. you show up, we'll let you in. <laughs> 6.30 on Tuesday. <laughs> That's amazing. Again, congratulations, too. Uh, you got some great people supporting you thank going you. forward, too. Yeah, thank you. So if I don't see you in JP on Tuesday, um, I'll see you around. You know, enjoy the rest of the winter. And uh, <laughs> you're on Facebook, too, so check out the Facebook page and, and make sure everyone likes her. Yeah, and, and I, got, I, got, I got my state rep Facebook page, which my team runs, and I got my personal. You can hit up either one. Um, Twitter is all me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Instagram is on my team. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so now you just know like how it, how it rolls for this well, particular you, team. <laughs> you know what I love about you? You you respond like immediately to like you're really good. I, I've talked to a lot of. Yeah, I tried, I've been on a little. I've been on a little social media break for the last three days. You you are on top of everything. Uh, I, I I love it. Uh, again, I can't. I'm so glad you came in. Uh, we're gonna be back. We're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna come back with Rhodes Pierre and talk guys, to him again, guys. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank or you, Nika. Or whatever's happening. I don't even know. <laughs> <It's> the camera. <laughs> yeah, it is. We're having okay. fun. <laughs> we'll be back.